in the middle of a series entitled The Gospel According to John, uh, The Radical Nature of Jesus' Love. I'm going to share some reflections and thoughts, um, and we're going to focus in on a little bit of, um, we're going to take a line in this passage in chapter 4, and uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about miracles. Is that okay? Can we talk about miracles? Part of the journey and the trajectory of Spark is to think deeply and critically about these ideas, um, about these teachings, and so... Um, buckle your seatbelts because we're going to go for a little bit of a ride. I hope you come with me on this. Let's start in uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 46. We'll read through verse 54. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum, or Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, which is an interesting phrase. That word you there is plural, by the way. So he's not just talking to this individual. He's talking to the group of people here. Presumably, he's speaking to a whole host of people who are following. The official said to him, sir, come sit down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. That word, sir, there is actually the Greek word kurios, which is used to designate Lord frequently. So he's using a very high title to describe and to address Jesus. And this phrase, will live, shows up multiple times actually in this passage. I'll point it out a couple times um, because it has will live, um, was alive. There's going to be multiple translations, but in every single one of these locations, it simply means lives. Go, your son lives. Present tense. It's like it happened. It is happening now. Go, your son lives. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. There it is again. His child lives. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover, and they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Again, your son lives. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now, This was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. The second sign. What was the first sign? Does anybody remember? Turning water into wine. The first sign, this is the second sign. There is an incredible cottage industry of religious and Christian ideas that center themselves around the idea of miracles. I believe in this, and then I believe I deserve it all. I believe in miracles, and they're... There are multiple avenues of Christian thought that want to emphasize that the fact that Jesus did miracles in the scriptures is evidence that miracles are true, that miracles are essentially the point. And if we can actually believe in these miracles, the miracles themselves will come true. There's a whole host of audio teachings and books and conferences, etc., movements that are centered around the idea that miracles happen. And if you analyze, if you've ever been to any of these, which I've been to some of these conferences, the entire focus of these events and this entire strain of Christianity is to emphasize that you too can experience the miracle. And if you pray hard enough and if you work hard enough, you will be able to experience these miracles. There are a lot of things to say about this. One of them is that there's some unfortunate things that can happen. For example, 
Has anybody seen this New York Times bestseller, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, which is a true story? Uh, They should have paid close attention to the authors of the book actually named Malarkey because it turned out to be not a true story. The kid actually recanted. And I want to be very careful and sensitive about this story because the poor kid actually wasn't an accident. It was a terrible accident. But the entire industry set this uh, family and this child up to emphasize the miraculous, the story about miracles and angels and going to heaven, and it turned out to be a fabrication. There is also some other challenges through the long history of philosophy, for those of you who take philosophy or are thinking about big ideas in the world. For example, David Hume is one of the most um, well-known writers and thinkers in this area from uh, the 18th century in this particular era, where he argued that if you're going to believe that supernatural, miraculous things happen, then you're going to have to provide extraordinary evidence. The kind of summative statement is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence in order for them to be true. And Christians have taken that, and because we see these acts and these signs in the gospel accounts, etc., there are multiple authors who have gone through great lengths to describe and argue philosophically how and why miracles can be true, especially in this day and age where a lot of us, especially in Silicon Valley and in a very, um, very educated part of the world where we think critically and all these kinds of things, Uh, try to argue vociferously that here are the ways in which you can hold to scientific rationalistic understanding and yet also still believe in miracles, the idea that supernatural things happen. In fact, Craig Keener's book, a very well-known Christian New Testament theologian, has written a two-volume work on the credibility of the New Testament accounts. And when you flip through his pages and the contents of his work, it's argument after argument and evidence after evidence pulled from all over the world that these miracles are true, that they happen, and how Hume's arguments are insufficient. David Hume's arguments are insufficient to count miracles out. The category of all of this discussion is what's known as metaphysics. That's the general category of what all of this discussion falls under. And metaphysics is essentially the idea that we know what the physical world is, but there is also, in addition to it, a metaphysical world. There's an additional world that either parallels or is hidden by. And if you could simply embrace metaphysical ideas, metaphysical principles, and especially those metaphysical evidences that are found in religious writings such as the Bible, well, then you could peer into and understand that there is a deeply secret hidden world amongst us. And there's a whole, like I said, a whole cottage industry uh, that rises up within Christianity that teaches about the metaphysical world that is even right here and amongst us. And if we simply could tap into that world, we could access supernatural powers, et cetera, et cetera. As you can imagine, there's a fierce discussion and debate around the validity of these arguments. The founding of our country is kind of established on anti-metaphysical practices. We've talked a little bit about Jefferson's Bible. Some of you know about this Bible where he goes through and believes that all the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus are teachings that we should keep, but all of those miraculous, wondrous, those kinds of things we should really cut out. And he physically, literally cut out all of the miraculous out of this Bible and it's now famously known as the Jefferson Bible. 
So with all of this conversation and discussion, especially in the uh, passage that we just read, Jesus raising somebody from, the, from being sick, changing water into wine, and John is going to go through seven, eight miracles, signs, wonders, miraculous events, however you want to state it. This is a big question for us, and I would imagine that many of us who have been on a journey of trying to wrestle with what Christianity is, who is Jesus, how to follow him, etc., are essentially going to have to wrestle with this. One of the things that Craig Keener does say that needs to be contended with is that no matter what you think or believe, you can't get away from the fact that supernatural, miraculous, wondrous events and works happen in the New Testament accounts. So whatever you think about them, you're going to have to contend with them. You're going to have to recognize and make sense of them, even if you live in a now, quote-unquote, rational, deterministic, naturalistic kind of world where these kinds of things we know scientifically don't happen or you've somehow convinced yourself in one way or the other. And yet at the other side of the table are those who fiercely hold on to the miraculous and the supernatural and the metaphysical. And this poses a significant dilemma as to what you actually do. Well, what I'd like to do and share with you today, and uh, thanks for hanging with me for being somewhat academic in this, but this is just where my mind goes, um, is I'd like to propose a solution to the problem that embraces a reality for many of us, the journey of recognizing science and rationalism and understanding about the natural and material world, about what does and does not, ha- does not, does and does, does not happen in the natural world, and a recognition of something miraculous and wondrous. And the solution, I think, that presents itself with this dilemma is actually pretty simple and pretty clear. It's almost like, do I need to say this out loud? So I'm going to recognize that as I go through this, some of this might go, is that it? And I'm going to say, yeah, that's it. It's kind of that simple. I want to say, before I continue, that the metaphysical argument, the philosophical argument about the existence of miracles is not my topic today. That's for a different time, for a different place, and if any of you are interested in actually having the philosophical debate on whether or not miracles can happen, that's for another time. That's not this talk. This talk is to ask the question, what do the gospel writers say? What do the wondrous acts actually mean? And what are we to think about that meaning in our day, given the fact that we are rationalist and scientific, et cetera, et cetera, technological, et cetera? Well, I'm going to give you a real simple solution. Search the word miracle in the New Revised Standard Version. How many hits do you get? (laughs) Zero. Look, there's no Bible verses. If you search the word miracle, no Bible verses actually come up. If If you search the word miracles, well, then you have a couple come up. But for those of you who can't see, 1 Chronicles, a few in Psalms, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Hebrews. No, there is no present word miracle in the New Revised Standard Version translation of the Bible anywhere to be found in the New Testament accounts. If you search the word sign, however, you get a whole host of verses. Search the word for miracle or look for the word miracle in the Bible, you don't see many miracles. But if you search for the word sign, they are all over the place. And then add to that, if you search the word sign just in the New Testament, you will see, ah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, there it is. 
huge evidence of signs, not miracles. I checked the Latin translation too, just to make sure. Latin translation, for those of you who don't know, dates all the way back to the 4th century AD. And I searched the word miraculum. These are the only occurrences in the entire Old and New Testament of the word miraculum. Numbers, 1 Samuel, Job, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And in fact, when you search what these passages are, the vast majority of these translations to miraculum, which means miracle, means fearful or terrifying. This wondrous thing, I don't know how to explain that is terrifying and horrifying. It's a fear-based kind of thing that's happening specifically in Job and Isaiah. And so here's my solution, my friends. Are you ready for this? Very simple. There are no miracles in the gospel accounts. Thank you. Um, and many of you might actually say, what? Wait a second. We just read about a miracle, didn't we? Water to wine, raising the sun. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. Uh, there's going to be the feeding of the 5,000. What the heck are you talking about? Um, for those of you who might have been savvy and saw the email that I sent out this week, I actually put miracles in quotes to give you a little bit of a hint of where I was going. So here's my argument, my friends. Um, Again, I'm not making the argument as to whether or not miracles are true or whether or not Jesus performed them. All I'm simply telling you is that the idea, the concept, the metaphysical category that we have of miracle doesn't really exist in our gospel accounts. What does exist are these three terms. There's actually a fourth term that I left out, but that's for later. These three terms. The first is the word sign, simeon, which is the word that is found all throughout the New Testament. There's another word, wonder, which is like astounding thing, which is teras. And then there is the word that is usually translated miracle in some other, like the New International Version translation, dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. Power, an exemplification of some sort of power. In the gospel accounts, this word dunamis, which is usually sometimes translated miracle, does not exist anywhere. It doesn't exist in the gospel of John. There is no account of that kind of power. And the word for wonder only shows up once or twice. It's just not there. Again, the emphasis that the gospel writers have is not on the miracle. The emphasis is on the sign. And this, my friends, is where I'm going to suggest to you the entire industry that we have Arguing for the miraculous may be slightly misled. Again, if you want to go in that direction, I don't want to argue against it. But if you want to say that this is what the gospel writers are talking about, I'm going to propose to you a different direction. Rather than metaphysics, we need to do something else called semiotics, which is where our category comes from, from the Greek word semion. Now, some of you actually have heard about semiotics. It's another philosophical term. It just simply means the study of signs what they mean, and how they are interpreted. You do semiotics every single day, all the time. You see symbols, words, icons, graphics, and you know instantly what they mean because you are in a, co a context or a culture of which those signs have meaning. Let's see if we can play a little bit of a game and see what meaning happens when I show you some signs. Does anybody have a sense of what this sign, what does this sign mean to you? Right, some of you are laughing. Some of you weren't even born when this was happening, you know? Maybe this will help. Does that help? Does that help any? Crash, oh right, crash. 
What does that mean? Yeah, this means bad technology, right? Right, that's what this means. Let me try another sign. Here's another sign. What does this sign mean? Ah, what does it mean? What is it, what is it saying? What kind of interpretation do you have? <laughs> no, nobody wants to say anything now, right? It's like, where is he going with this? Right, the first thing you should think of is this, right? This is what that sign means. The sign bird means this. But some of you, some of you might think bird actually means this. And for others of you, specifically in Silicon Valley, the sign actually means this. For some of you who are geeky like my wife's, the sign means this. Anybody know Wingspan? No. Yeah, yeah. It's her, her, her new favorite game. Some of you maybe didn't even think of this, but that word bird also means this. And for those of you, I don't know, Patty mentioned something happening today. I don't know. Sometimes the word bird means this. Larry. Semiotics is the study of what the sign means and how it's interpreted and how those meanings work themselves out in the world. The exact same word and the exact same sign might mean multiple things to multiple people. The window sign means amazing innovation to one, horrible technology to another. The word bird can mean a simple animal, but it can also mean I'm really angry and ticked off. It, that's semiotics. Semiotics is the study of signs and what it means. I'll give you another one. What is this? It's a rainbow, right? A rainbow is a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful symbol. If I take a rainbow and I do this, what does it mean? It now means something else, doesn't it? It means something because the symbol itself has been imbued with a certain interpretation, a cultural context, and a meaning structure. That's semiotics. I'll give you some, what does this mean? Right, you, some of you recognize this. This is the ARC experience in Kentucky. It was built by um, a group of people who believe in a very literal interpretation of Genesis. Uh, they are conservative in their theological views. Um, it was damaged because of flooding not too long ago, actually. That's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> and the ark story, does anybody remember, ends in a rainbow, right? The story of the Noah and the ark ends in a rainbow. And so they decided, they decided as a celebration to do this to their ark. Which when you put those two meanings together, you can imagine Twitter had a field day with this image. Now for a shameless plug, this is my shameless plug. Uh, my partner, Sammy, uh, has just produced our third video, um, which is called Bo, which explains more of the rainbow, the story of Atrahasis, the ancient flood of 3000 BC, and what it means and pulling all that out. So if you're on our email list, you will be getting that email very soon. This is like my favorite video because what rainbow actually means in the biblical context is something very different. So there's a little teaser and a shameless plug for that. That'll be coming out very, very soon, probably tonight, as soon as I get home because I'm super excited about it. Semiotics is the study of signs and symbols and their use and or interpretation. Rather than metaphysics, my friends, Rather than arguing for the existence of miracles, rather than saying miracles are true, therefore God is powerful, etc., etc., all that entire thing, it appears as if what the gospel writers are doing is something radically different, much more in accordance with semiotics than with metaphysics. In other words, the signs of all of these miraculous, wondrous events that Jesus performs are actually pointing to something else. The miracles 
are not the point, which is why many translators don't even translate these words as miracle. Rather than the question for us, as if you're a follower of Jesus, if you really want to understand what's really going on here, this question is not a great question. Are the miracles true and are they real? This, my friends, according to semiotics, is a better question. To what do the miracles point? What do the signs actually mean? Because when you drive down the road, the sign is not the point. The sign is there to point you in a direction. Perhaps another way uh, to think about it is that the sign's meaning. What is the meaning of it? Is that it's pointing to something greater, meaning beyond the sign itself. It's pointing to something beyond it. This is not, might be a nice little pithy way of putting it. The sign is not the point. The sign points. The sign is not the point. The sign points. And like I said, I'm almost embarrassed how simple this is. So please forgive me. But this is kind of it. The gospel writer, according to John, tells us exactly why, they're, why these things are in there. Now Jesus did many other signs not miracles. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you, my friends, may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Let me say it again. I don't think there are miracles in the gospel accounts in the ways that we think about miracles. What there are are signs that are pointing us to Jesus, Jesus' way, and by trusting in Jesus and in that way, we will have life. Like I said, it's kind of that simple. The miracle is there, but notice the arrow as well. It points to something else, primarily that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And all of that movement is to get us to the life that Jesus came to give. I heard one person say, consider a miracle or a sign as a parable in motion. The parable is not the point. The parable is supposed to point to something beyond it, something more meaningful, something more deep. And if you really want something corny, you could consider that the miracles are significant. That was bad. That was really bad. This seems commensurate with a, um, a lot of things that are actually found throughout our story. Your son lives. This sign. All of these signs that happen are actually very much in line with a long history and a long tradition. Genesis talks about a sign. Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs and for seasons and for the days and for the years. Even the sun, the moon, and the stars are there to point to something beyond itself. Namely, that there's a naturally created order, naturally created nature that moves and breathes according to God's original design. It's also very much in accordance with another contrary theme that you'll find in the other portions of the gospel accounts, which is that people are constantly looking for signs. False messiahs and false prophets will appear to pr and produce signs and omens to lead astray if possible the elect. In fact, some people say, hey, people are getting really caught up in these 
miracles, these signs, these wondrous events. Let's do some of those, and maybe they'll follow us as a result. Because they recognize that the, the thing, the wondrous event, the, the miracle, if you want to call it that, is actually very captivating. Um, and this is part of the reason why Jesus says this line, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What, why does he say that? Because it appears as if that entire discussion that he, I said at the very beginning seems to captivate us so much. We want to believe in the miracle. We want to believe in the supernatural. We want to believe in the metaphysical. We want to believe that there's something else. And that's the thing that we want to believe in. That's the thing we, that gives us hope, is that there's a metaphysical world. There's an angelic and spiritual realm to which, if we can simply tap into that power, then all will be well. And fascinatingly, if Jesus argues against this. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answers, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, there's a whole bunch in here. The point in this particular reference is to say an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Right. There's something still within us that is constantly urging, pushing, grasping for the miraculous. This is what we need. Again, Matthew 12. The Pharisees came and to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. <laughs> show us a sign. Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Jesus is actually arguing against these things. Don't get caught up in the miracle. It's not the point. The miracle is not the point. The miracle points to something else. One of the possibilities of what people are doing during this time and what we do is that they recognize that if I can simply grasp on to those miracles from the gods, I myself will be able to hold that power. Serapis is actually a god that spits on the ground, creates mud, rubs it in somebody's eyes and heals. Apollo is the god of light and of poetry. Asclepius is the god of healing. Demeter is the god of bread who actually transforms grain into food. And Dionysus is the god of wine who was also twice born. You can do an entire study of the Greek pantheon and recognize that many of the symbols and the signs and the miracles that Jesus performs are very much in contradistinction to the Greco-Roman gods. Very much similar for those of you who've done studies of the Ten Commandments against the Egyptian gods. We see a similar parallel here with Jesus saying, not these guys. But again, what may also be happening here is that in a world in which these powers are made available to us, if we see somebody else who's now doing some power, we want that power ourselves. Aren't we, Aren't we power-hungry people? Yes, give me some of that. I want to see that miracle. I want to be able to do that miracle myself. But the sign is not the point. The sign points to something else. I think this theme and this idea is still alive today because, how many of you seen this? Anybody seen Encanto? Yeah? Yeah. What's this story all about when you think about it? You have this family, and what happens? There's a miracle, and you have to hold on to the miracle. And if you don't hold on to the miracle, the entire thing is going to fall apart. And what happens in this, sorry, spoiler alert, anybody who's not seen the movie, I just want to, if you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, just close your ears. The miracle begins to overtake the reality and the truth and the brilliance of the family. And what happens is with Maribel is that she starts to feel the, the pain that she doesn't have it. She's not been given the power of the miracle. 
And so she laments, I can't move the mountains. I can't do this. And then I love this next line. I can't control the morning rain or a hurricane. So that kind of references Jesus' natural miracles as well. So she's waiting. I love this line. Am I too late for him? And I want to scream at the screen. No, you're not too late. Why? Because the miracle, what does it do? It actually points to somebody. The miracle pointed to something else. And if Maribel would recognize who she is, and then the entire story just unraveled. Again, spoiler alert, I'm terribly sorry for those who haven't seen the movie. If you would just simply embrace the truth and the reality that it simply exists in front of you, That, my friends, is the miracle. But what happened in the story is that the entire cast, the entire drama of it is I'm holding on to the miracle. That's the thing that's going to hold us together. And what they find out is that holding on to the miracle is actually the very wrong thing to do. It's by letting go. What do you see? I see me. Not the miracle. I see me. All of me. And by extension, the family. The entire theme of the movie seemed to resonate so much with this idea. There, I am, I'm watching this movie and going, there it is. There it is again. We are, we are yet still trying to hold on to the miracle, the supernatural, the thing that is beyond us. When the entire time, when the entire time Sorry, this is what Jesus is saying here. What kind of people have we become? What kind of followers of Jesus have we become in which we require that thing to happen in order order for us to believe? When the reality is that the entire purpose of these things is to point us to the person who's already right in front of us, to point us to the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of that way, And by believing and trusting in that way, we will have life. The very thing that's right there. I'd like to rewrite this a little bit and to say, but many these things are written so that you may come to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faithfulness, you may have life in his name. The very thing that we keep holding on to is the very thing that is trying to cause us to let go and to point to something else. So for those of us who are trying to grasp onto the metaphysical, to the thing outside, to the wondrous, the, the supernatural event as the evidence and the proof of what this faith is, I'm going to propose to you, my friends, be more like Mirabel than like Abuela. Let it go. You've not been given that power. I think this also helps us for those of us who are like, I, I, don't, I don't know, do I have that power? Has God granted that? The answer is yes. Because... The entire purpose of the sign is to point to something beyond it. And for us, that means pointing to the community, pointing to who Jesus is, the way of Jesus, the the manner by which we live. 
All of the things that Jesus has taught about justice and righteousness, about mercy and compassion, about generosity and faithfulness and kindness, about love. Those are the things that these signs point to. And those are the things that are right in front of us. And those are the things that we can realize right here and right now. We don't need to hold on to the miracle. We're going to move into a time of communion, my friends. I'm going to ask Darren to come on up. And I hope that in some ways we recognize once again that the elements right here that are in front of us point to something even beyond themselves. It's very easy for all of us to make an idol out of anything. But the elements point to something even bigger. In fact, Jesus even said so himself. That the communion, the bread, and the wine point to him, but point to something even beyond. They point to the second coming. They point to the very presence. They point to the community. And so as you come and take communion, as you share in the elements, may we be reminded once again of the fullness of that truth, of the presence of God in this community, in one another, and by the love that Jesus has shared with us um, through that sacrifice. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And for those of you who are just wondering, everybody, all of you, are welcome to this table. Come as we sing.